Good morning, church. Would you please be turning in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 6? This morning we begin a study of the most profound teaching that we have recorded in the Bible from the Lord Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount, or in Luke's version, the Sermon on the Plain, and we'll talk about that a little bit here in just a moment. But as I read this morning, and we deal principally with verse 20, I'm going to back up to verse 17 and just give us a little bit of context as we get into this text this morning. Please remember as I read that these are the words of the Lord. And Jesus came down with them, that is his disciples, and stood on a level place. And there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured and all the crowd was trying to touch him for power was coming from him and healing them all. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are the poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Thus far as the reading of the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as you take your seats, we'll prepare our hearts this morning for the word by asking God's blessing on our time. Father, it is possible to live in a place of the richest kind of blessing and be ignorant of it or look to others and what they have and forget how richly rewarded we are for following Jesus. Would you please remind us of that this morning as we go through this text, that you are Lord of all, that you are establishing a kingdom and that in following you, we are co-heirs of that kingdom with Christ. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, over the last several months, I've been making my way through Stephen Pressfield's book, Gates of Fire. It's a retelling of the 300 Spartans and the Battle of Thermopylae. For those of you who may be interested in checking out the book, I'll just go ahead and give a disclaimer. The Spartans do not have the same attitude and manners as, say, a Mr. Darcy from Pride and Prejudice. So a little bit of a language warning if you choose to pick up that book. Prior to the epic face-off between the invincible army of one million plus Persians and what was known at that time as the suicide squad of brave Lacedaemonians, the agoge or soldiers of the Spartiate are preparing their minds for the undeniably hopeless task ahead. One of the slaves of an officer present for the battle, Antares was his name, and he was a man who had received prestige for his previous feats of bravery in battle. He raised his voice to exhort the troop of men present. He said, when a warrior fights not for himself, but for his brothers, when his most passionately sought goal is neither glory nor his own life's preservation, but to spend his substance for them, for his comrades, not to abandon them, not to prove unworthy of them, 
then his heart has truly achieved a contempt of death. And with that, he transcends himself and his actions to touch the sublime. For all of human history, fallen humanity has been chasing that exact place, that place of sublimity, that, that state of consolation, tranquility, that blessedness. The Buddhists have a name for their version of it. So, that, so do the Mohammedans, and so do the Hindus. Having received the oracles of the law, the Jews put their wonder about blessedness to music. Who may ascend into the mountain of Yahweh? And who may rise in his holy place? He who has innocent hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to worthlessness and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall lift up a blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now, six chapters into the Gospel of Luke, we should know that Jesus is always prepared to throw a good curveball. Having descended the mountain with his newly appointed apostles, he turned to them and the rest of his disciples, and in the hearing of both the Jews and the Gentiles present, began the greatest sermon of all time, not by giving blessing away or even promising to give blessing away. He revealed to the multitude within earshot that there were men present in their midst that day, alive, breathing, and following him who already had that blessing. The blessing of Yahweh God that all humanity had been longing for since the forbidden fruit juice ran down the cheek of Adam. There were men who had already been bestowed that blessedness. And they were the most unlikely of candidates too. Well, as I've said already, we're about to embark on unarguably the most famous sermon of the Lord Jesus we're going to cover the Beatitudes, the woes. We're going to talk about loving your enemies. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Judge not lest you be judged. Get the log out of your own eye. A tree is known by its fruit. Why do you say, Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? And build your house on the rock, not on the sand. Eager though we are to get straight into verse 20 this morning... The most common misunderstandings of the sermon come from ignoring the larger context. So I want to take some time this morning to elaborate on that, to paint a picture for you. We're going to be here for a while. We're going to take through March 24th, Palm Sunday, to make our way through the entire Sermon on the Mount or plain here. But let's get our bearings straight as we go into this this morning. I want you to look at the three verses that we concluded with last week. Jesus came down with them in verse 17. And he stood on a level place. There was a large crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him, to be healed of their diseases. Those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured, and all the crowd was trying to touch him. For power was coming from him and healing them all. Now the first big 
change from Matthew's version, version is that of landscape. I've always heard of Luke's account referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. The majority of pastors and theologians from church history understood these to be two completely isolated events. Jesus preached an unabridged sermon on the mountaintop to his disciples who were present, and on a separate occasion, a separate time and place, he delivered a similar but maybe a director's cut version down in a valley, as some translations say. This answers the biggest question of Bible critics, namely, why is Luke's account not the same as the former tax collector turned disciple? And I'm going to talk about those discrepancies a little bit more here in just a minute. But one thing nobody questions about these two accounts, Matthew chapter 5 through 7 and this portion of Luke chapter 6, one thing nobody questions is this. What the Lord Jesus says in these groupings of verses is top tier, it is foundational, it is critical to the Christian life. Even the average, unbelieving, hard-hearted, woke-smoking, liberal college professor knows that what Jesus says here, whatever he says here and how they misinterpret it, what Jesus says here is central to the kingdom. Now, if it's that important, surely the Lord Jesus would have repeated this message more than one time. I used to teach an abstinence curriculum in the public schools, and I would go from one school to the next, and I would say the exact same words over and over and over and over. Of course, I had different crowds of people every time. They always thought they were hearing a new message, but to me, it was the same message over and over again. It would not have been out of the question for Jesus to have said this on more than one occasion. But I want to argue to you this morning that these two events, the Sermon on the Mountain and the Sermon on the Level Place from the LSB, are more closely connected than two separate isolated events in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. The key phrase in our passage this morning is topu pedinu, which is level place in most of the modern translations, the KJV stands alone as calling it a plain. Though this is not necessarily a mistranslation, it could be misleading to you. Some accuse Luke or Matthew of getting the geography completely wrong. Well, why did Luke say plain and Matthew said mountain? How did these two things not line up? The sermons are so similar, or so similar, there's so many elements that are the same. Why are why is everything not the same? Why is it not identical? And in response, most commentators throughout church history have simply said that these are two unrelated teaching events. But I don't think that was the case. You know, if you're from the East Tennessee area, that we have mountains. And in some respects, our mountains are similar to the ranges in the area of Palestine. But amongst the Appalachian Mountains, we also have flat places, plateaus. Some call them balds. A field up high that makes a good picnic spot with some room for a game of ultimate frisbee. It's the same in Galilee. High peaks and some interspersed cove green areas. 
Here's what I think is actually going on between Matthew and Luke. Luke's account, or excuse me, um, Luke's account immediately follows Matthew's. Before Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, he spent all night praying to the Father on top of that mountain. That's from Luke chapter 6, verse 12. And when day came, his disciples came to him. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Luke 6, verse 13. He calls 12 of them in that moment. He names his 12 apostles. That's Luke 6, 13 to 15. And then, having named those 12 apostles, he shared his kingdom ethic with them privately. That's Matthew 5, verse 2 to the end of chapter 7. Now, I'm going to get into this more in the next section, but this explains why the teaching was much more extensive in Matthew versus in Luke. Luke has a more consolidated version. Then Jesus descended the mountain to a plateau area, a level place, still up high in the mountain ranges, one of those balds, and he repeated the sermon in front of a wider audience, the 12 apostles, all the disciples, and a great multitude of people from all around the area of Palestine. Now at this point, some of you are wondering, so what? What if it is two different points of the ministry, or what if it was the exact same day? Jesus woke up from his all-night prayer with the, the Father, and then he gives the message to the disciples, and then he comes down the mountain and he gives it to the people. What difference does it really make? Well, first off, I think that it brings the best harmony between the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. There are too many similarities, as I mentioned a moment ago, between the two tales for them to not be more closely connected in their stories. And as a result, it answers all of the objections brought by unbelievers against the writers of the New Testament. Why are Matthew and Luke's locations for the sermon not the same? Why do they contain different subject matter? Why is Luke's material so truncated? Lastly, and for the sake of our application this morning, it shows that Jesus did and how he did bring the message of the kingdom and the behavior of the kingdom, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the cost of discipleship, into the public square. One of the big questions Christians tend to ignore in Bible study and interpretation is audience. We assume, reading the Bible, that we're the intended audience. This was written for me, and so I interpret it based on my own worldview, based on my own current context, and some of the slantings and presuppositions that I have because I was raised in the West. But you remember, as I've said, Luke has three groups in attendance for this meeting, the apostles, the disciples, and the multitude. And anticipation in the ministry of the Lord Jesus is at an all-time high at this point. One commentator rightly perceived, men and women who know yet nothing of what Jesus will say already feel the transforming power of his person. Howsoever darkened in spirit, Confused and sin-sick they be, they sense themselves on the cusp of being forever changed. And this is what's interesting to me about what Jesus goes in to say here. 
in the sermon. This is setting us up for the context of the whole sermon. The Sermon on the Mount, or the Sermon on the Level Place, the plain, is not Jesus' most seeker-friendly talk that he ever gives. He isn't looking to meet anybody's felt needs with this message. You can imagine somebody saying, look, there's the Lord Jesus. It looks like he's healing again. Come on, let's go and let's get a blessing from him too. He's about to say something, quiet. I'm on the edge of my seat. And then Jesus turns to them and says something like, you remember that guy who shouted at you last week over that bad deal? Yeah, he was the one who cursed your wife and your family as you walked away. I want you to forgive him. And then I want you to take him out to lunch on you. And then I want you to go to bed that night with your wife and kids praying for him, for his wife and for his kids, that they would grow in righteousness and that God would richly bless them. That doesn't really fit into the modern gospel presentation message, the pseudo-gospel that we hear today. Become a Christian. We have cookies. It's kind of the way people present it these days. You're not going to find the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain fitting in between the fifth and sixth refrains of just as I am, okay? This isn't Jesus' most approachable message, in fact, he sets the bar as high as he can. In Matthew, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the people that everyone in this area considers to be the most righteous people, the scribes and the Pharisees, unless your righteousness exceeds that, you'll never enter my kingdom. This isn't an easy word coming from the Lord Jesus. Beloved, our Savior wants us to know that there is absolutely no way for us to get Christendom 2.0 on the cheap. There's no way to do it. It's easy to say God's grace is free. God's love is powerful. Jesus reaches for the worst. The gospel can save you. It can overcome your afflictions. It can break all your chains. It can help you rise above oceans and fix your broken marriage and get you promotions and raises and get the most rebellious kids at school saved and help you win football championships and help get your wife pregnant. Maybe. God does work wonders through conversion and in his common grace love towards people. But a gospel that substance is free giveaways is a false gospel. And that's what Jesus is about to explode in the minds of this group of people who's gathered around him trying to touch him because they're saying, I want, I want. And he's saying, well, if you want... Here's what it looks like. He didn't come to hand out healings. He came to take dominion of the whole world. When we tell people to repent and believe, we aren't asking them if they would like a free vacation package. We're calling them to enlist in a heavenly army, a company of sin and Satan-liberated individuals who beg Christ to bore a hole through their ear and make them slaves forever. Men and women who give their lives and at times their livelihood to build and fight for King Jesus. You're not inviting them on a cruise ship. You're signing them up for a battleship that's mid-sail and already in conflict. 
Let me ask you, beloved, how often do you ask people considering Christ to count the cost? That's the effect this message is meant to have on the crowds. You want to follow me? Here's what it looks like. They're clamoring around Jesus for what he can give, but Jesus wants them to hear what real fellowship with the Son of God demands. You want to know why so many Christians, including big-name evangelicals today, are apostatizing? They're going woke, they're going gay, they're going trans-affirming, baby-murder-candidate-supporting. It's because they have a cheap gospel, and they peddle it. The gospel is cheap, and there's no discipleship attached to it. Pastors today are afraid to command from the scriptures no excuse obedience to Jesus. Instead, they stick to the damnable heresy of gospel centrality, which is liberal Christian code language for Jesus died for you, but all the stuff that Paul wrote about is kind of up to you. It's an opinion. It was for his context. Let's just stick to what Jesus said. He never taught about modesty. He came to free you from your sin. Of course Jesus would have loved his LGBTQ, LMNOP neighbors. Without a doubt, he would have attended their weddings. You know what? I bet he would have driven his daughter to Planned Parenthood. You should be ashamed that you won't. Judas won't be alone in the darkest recesses of hell for long with wicked teaching like that. Let me ask you, church, is the person you're praying for and witnessing to on the verge? Do they seem like they're right there? Have you told them? Have you told them what they're really getting into? Have you told them what they're signing up for? Following Christ is not for pansies. If God had given them a new heart, if God, in fact, does give them a new heart then the cost will be nothing compared to the treasure in the field that they've set eyes on. And they'll sell everything so that they can have the treasure. Now, I want to look for just a minute before we get into verse 20 at the sermon as a whole. So we're going to look at verses 20 through 49, just broadly a big overview of the sermon. What is the sermon all about? Let's talk content for just a few minutes. Both Matthew and Luke's versions of Jesus' message have been dissected in countless ways throughout church history. Some read the sermon soteriologically, as though it's a, a formula for getting saved. God brings your spirit to poverty, you're able to receive the kingdom, and then he makes you hunger for the word of God, and then you cry over your sin, but he brings you laughter and joy. I've heard Paul Washer teach the Beatitudes this way. It's not entirely wrong. There's truth hidden in there. Others see the Sermon on the Mount as a penitential message. The insanely high standard Jesus describes in the coming verses convicts the heart and prepares the reader for God to do a work of grace. Dispensationalists have viewed it entirely differently. They see the sermon as an eschatological kingdom standard of righteousness. What we see here in this text is too high a call for anybody, even a Christian. It's too high 
a standard. No one can do this. It must be in the future. It must be at a future time when Christ will come back and reign on the earth and we will be with him. We'll always have his teaching and his standards and we can ask him questions. Then this standard is going to go into effect. Now that's just three examples of ways to read these verses that we're going into over the coming weeks. I read over 18 different ways to read the sermon this last week, and there are further nuances in each of those that I read. Over the last month, though, careful listeners will have heard me mention the phrase kingdom ethic. I mentioned it earlier just a moment ago. That's what I think that Jesus is getting at here with his teaching, regardless of who you are. Regardless of where you come from or when you live on earth after Christ, none of that is relevant because what Jesus states in the coming verses is his behavioral expectation for all of his people at all times, in all places, everywhere. This kind of righteousness should be evident in all disciples of Christ. Someone will respond, How is that possible? How do I love my enemies and not judge wrongly and forgive freely and make sure that the log is out of my eye and still be able to help others with the speck in theirs and speak with an abundance of good from my heart, continue over my life to build on the rock of Christ? How do I do this? That is absolutely one of the questions that we should be asking when we read this text. And I'm going to save the answer to that question for the coming weeks after we look at the Beatitudes, which is kind of the introduction to the sermon. Earlier in the message, though, I mentioned fluctuations between Matthew and Luke. The two accounts actually have a lot in common. Both sermons begin with the Beatitudes. Beatitude, by the way, is the Latin word for blessed are, so this is the way that in the Latin Vulgate version of the text it would begin. It would begin with beatitude, so or beatus. Both sermons end with the parable of where to build a house. Both sermons have a similar moral ethical force. And everything that Luke wrote, with the exception of the woes in verses 24 to 26, is contained in Matthew. In contrast... We've already talked about the location differences between the two sermons. And Luke has the sermon right after the choosing of the 12 apostles. Matthew names the 12 apostles at a different point in his gospel. It's not necessarily a choosing, but they are listed, the names of the apostles, in Matthew chapter 10. The most significant variation is one that I've already mentioned, and that's size. How much shorter Luke's entry is. In Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount takes up three whole chapters comprising about 107 verses compared to Luke's version, which is less than one whole chapter and is about 30 verses long. But I think Luke's omissions actually answer more questions than they present. Matthew has a ton of material that would only be relevant for his largely Jewish 
audience, his disciples gathered there who were to preach and teach to the Jewish world. The teachings on the law, for example, or the tradition of the elders that he deals with in chapter 6. I came not to abolish the law. You have heard that it was said, so on and so forth. Fasting like the hypocrites, religious leaders that the Jews and Jesus' disciples in particular would have easily identified. Luke leaves all of that out. However, almost all of that teaching is found somewhere else in Luke, in parallel, catered to his Gentile audience. Instead, the good doctor focuses entirely on the morals of the kingdom of Christ. I want to ask a question, though. Why can't we say that Luke's version is shorter because Jesus preached a shorter message? Doesn't that make sense? If he was up on the mountain with his disciples and he was giving them the kingdom ethic and then he came down the mountain and he preached a shorter message, does it not make sense that Luke would have recorded a shorter message? Why do we have to read things into poor Luke that he took things out of the Bible and he was trying to change things on Matthew? And Don't forget the audience. I'm going to say this over and over again over the next several weeks. Luke set this scene up with people having come not only from Judea and Jerusalem, but also Tyre and Sidon. So the goyim, the Gentiles, are listening. Jesus adjusts his message to the understanding and comprehension of his audience. Now somebody may want to stop me here and say, that doesn't fit with what you just said about not holding back. I mean, you're supposed to give them the whole truth and nothing but the truth, right? Jesus is taking away from his message. What, is he afraid of offending his people? Beloved, possession of the truth doesn't give us the right to be a jerk. Twitter is a cesspool of bad dialogue, including Christians who think the spirit animal of bravery and faithfulness is a donkey. Jesus was filled with masculine courage, but he spoke with self-control and also with wisdom. When the Tyrians and Sidonians were listening, he chose not to say, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. He said that up on the mountaintop to his disciples, but he didn't say that when he was in the level place. It may not have been best to repeat to this audience, and when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard because of their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. No, Jesus is not being a coward. He's being wise. You brood of vipers is a very Christ-like thing to say at the right time. But you notice Jesus didn't berate Nicodemus with it in John chapter 3 when he came secretly like a coward by night to ask the Lord Jesus some questions. When he's calling men to count the cost of discipleship, what's the point of taking personal shots at them? He just lays out his kingdom standard and that's enough to sift between the sheep and the goats. I want to go back to my New Year's wish for the church. For the church to receive the gift of 
discernment. We have got to figure out how to walk and chew gum at the same time. We have got to be able to tell the difference between courage and contempt, between grace and spinelessness. This last week, Michael Foster released information about this year's conference he's hosting in Batavia, Ohio, the end of August, the beginning of September. In lieu of the county before country theme that he's had going the last three years, he's changing the focus in his upcoming conference to guts and grace. He describes the conference in these words. Christianity requires both guts and grace. Shrill controversialists may have guts, but they lack grace. Cultural appeasers may come off as gracious, but they are just as gutless. Only with both can you fight the good fight. I'm looking forward to going to this one. I think it's very needed in the church today. But this is what Jesus is up to here. This is what he's calling us to do as his disciples when we go into the world, to be discerning about how we share the message, to be forward, to not be afraid, to be brave, to present all of the truth but to also be wise and shrewd about what we say and when. Let me give you a brief outline of Luke's version of the sermon before we get into verse 20 this morning. Three points. Number one, it begins with the Beatitudes, which you could say is a prophetic declaration of hope. The Beatitudes, verses 20 to 26, a prophetic declaration of hope. Section two, the exhortation which is the fundamental ethic for disciples, 27 to 38. The exhortation, the fundamental ethic for disciples. And then lastly, the parables, the warnings that demand a response. Verses 39 to 49, the parables, the warnings that demand a response. Well, now if you'll look with me at your Bibles in verse 20, And we read together, turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The first question we need to answer in the text this morning is who is Jesus talking about here? Who are the poor? Right off the bat, let's flush the silly notion that Jesus is conferring blessing based on one's socioeconomic status. You don't get blessed with the kingdom of God because you have no money. Not merely so. How do I know that? Well, because the Bible, of which Jesus is the author of all of it, says that poverty is the result of the fall a sorry state, and usually a curse on wicked men. Solomon said, the rich man's wealth is his strong city, but the ruin of the poor is their poverty. That's from Proverbs 10, 15. And I missed the part in there where it said, the blessing of the poor is their poverty. It doesn't say that. Having want is naturally despicable to all people. And so again, from Proverbs 19, verse 7, all the brothers of a poor man hate him. All of them. How much more do his friends distance themselves from him? He pursues them with words, but they are no more. 
Proverbs 13, 18, tells us that the reward for rebellion is poverty. Poverty and disgrace come to him who neglects discipline, but he who keeps reproof will be honored. And lastly, from Proverbs 6, verse 11, the destiny of the sluggard is to be poor. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your want like an armed man. How can the same God who wrote Proverbs be handing out grace to those who have a zero balance in their checking account? It doesn't work that way. He isn't. That's not what Jesus is saying, no matter what the average American evangelical seminary professor might try and tell you. They've all been reading a little too much Karl Marx. You know, poor people can be some of the most selfish and covetous and unrepentant people there are. With all of the outs they are offered by the state today in the United States of America at the cost of the income of our grandchildren, by the way, they take advantage of none of it to get out of their poverty. And most of what we do perpetuates poverty to help them. Now, I know sin is not the only thing that can make you poor. The Bible speaks of those unfortunate to experience a hard providence, a natural disaster, or even a satanic attack. Job would be an example of all three of those. The scriptures also tell us that people become poor because of oppressive tyrants over them. You might think of the Israelites languishing under wicked taskmasters in Egypt, or Jews perhaps under Roman occupation, or American citizens filing their yearly income tax. But Jesus is clearly talking about more than just money here. Who's he targeting? In Matthew's account, the qualifying phrase, poor in spirit, is added from Matthew 5, verse 3. Could Jesus have been talking about people who have a humility about them, a modesty of mind, even somebody on the verge of something like depression? While I'm generally in favor of letting Scripture interpret Scripture, it's an excellent principle to use The authors of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, typically have a reason for stating things differently from one another. When there's an omission here or an addition here, there's a reason for that. We don't want to blend them too much to where we make one say the exact same thing as the other when a different message was intended. Jesus didn't come down the mountain to start his message with poor in spirit. He just said poor. And again... It's the audience that makes all the difference. Disciples, including the apostles and the multitude. The first group had committed to Jesus. You know, in other places, even earlier in Luke, they left everything and followed him. The second group, that mass of people who had come to get healed, they're still thinking about it. They're not sure yet. Luke's poor are those who have given up worldly advancement and opportunity for the sake of the kingdom. In other words, they are the faithful disciples of Christ who have counted the cost and faced the cost, become poor in any and perhaps every meaning of the word. And Jesus here says, them folk, 
they're in a state of blessedness. And by the way, anyone who wants to join them today can count the cost and then come on to the fun side. Everyone who receives Christ's gospel and by faith lives out the implications of that gospel is told by the Lord Jesus they will pay a price. It may be monetary, it may be relationships, it may be jobs, promotion, prestige, reputation, so on and so on. But rest assured, the reward for the cost is very great indeed. James said, listen, my beloved brothers, did not God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? James isn't talking about merely monetary poor people. He's talking about the same kind of poor people that Jesus is talking about here in Luke chapter 6. One commentator, having examined the long tradition of interpretation throughout the church, and also borrowing a not-so-pleasant contemporary phrase, said that the first beatitude in Luke's version, the first blessing that is offered, is a promise to what he called the purpose-driven poor. Those people who have deliberately renounced the world to follow the way of the cross. Now, I will say before I go any further, you can take this too far. The insecure, the unassured of their salvation, who are looking for proof of their citizenship in heaven, in sin, will take this and they'll jump to works righteousness. Men have ruined their families over stuff like this, quitting their jobs, turning into full-time street preachers for the cause, selling their homes, moving their wife and children all the way around the world to the hardest place they can imagine, somewhere in the 1040 window, the more dark, the more dangerous, the better, but it's really just to prove something to themselves, and that's damnable. Paul said, if anyone does not provide for his own, his own family, especially those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Jesus doesn't smile on sacrifices when they lead to disobedience elsewhere. This can become just another Corban law. You can say, well, I know Jesus told me to provide for my family, but I want to give my life to God. So I, I can't, I don't have time for my family anymore. David and Angela wanted to take care of those children. They looked at their situation and they looked at their home and they said, we can't. We have an obligation to this son. This is our son. And their elders were 100% behind them in that. You brothers, you, you brother and sister, you're making the right decision. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. 1 Corinthians 13.3. Again, if we're looking for balance and wisdom, Solomon has it. From Proverbs 30, verses 7 to 9, Two things I ask of you. Do not withhold them from me before I die. Keep worthlessness and every false word far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is Yahweh? Or lest I be impoverished 
and not blessed, but I steal and profane the name of my God. What's at the heart of this poverty? It's one who has given up everything to say, I wait for my food from you, O Lord. I believe that you will put me on the path and I will work hard at that. Whatever you give me to do, I'll work at it with all my might, but I'm trusting in you. I'm not trusting in myself. If poverty makes us deny God, then keep it far from us, Lord. If riches make us trust in ourselves, then never let us have them. But make no mistake, the paupers in verse 20 here, those who are poor in the eyes of the world, they don't go away empty-handed. Not from this message. Jesus says, blessed are the poor. The Greek word is makarios. And it's usually in Greek referring to an emotion. It can be described as something as simple as happiness or a contented spirit or even good fortune, good luck. And that seems kind of like a letdown in this context. It's a little shallow, bit of a nothing burger. Jesus isn't talking, though, about passing feelings. What he's describing here is a new realm, a new reality, a new state of being. There was a time in our country when if you wanted to become a United States citizen, you had to go through a lengthy and arduous process to get there. Lots of education and training and lots of paperwork. It's usually a multi-year endeavor. But for those who do the work, who give the time and effort and stick it out, on the day of their swearing-in ceremony, they get more than just an excited feeling. They get more than just glee. They're granted status as free men with all the benefits and rights therein of United States citizens. They are blessed to belong here. Now that most certainly will produce happiness in the heart. But even on their worst days, the first time they have to pay their income tax, by the way, they have not moved one inch, no matter how they feel, they have not moved one inch from the new reality of their blessed citizenship. Do you know what the first blessing was in the entire Bible? I was talking to Will Templeton about this this morning. You know what the first blessing was in the entire Bible? It's when God created the sea creatures. The very first creatures he created, the birds and the sea creatures, and he blessed them. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then, just a few verses later, he creates the land animals and humanity. And he blesses them and says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He tells men, take dominion. Think about this in terms of biblical theology. Jesus is coming as Yahweh God and beginning the blessing again to his people. Genesis is turned around, and now the first thing that gets a blessing, not the last, the first, is man. And man, through his blessed state, then goes and blesses the world, everything. We're going to touch the whole cosmos with the love of Christ, with the gospel of Jesus. 
Every square inch, as Dustin prayed in his prayer, every atom in all of creation will one day be Jesus's. And Jesus has blessed us for leaving this darkness, this present and fleeting realm, and coming to him and blessed us to go out and take dominion for him. And here's the best part of this beatitude. Jesus says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not shall be, not might be. He's not doing eschatological meteorology here. Skies are looking good for tomorrow. That kingdom will one day be yours. Jesus is stating that the men whom he's facing right now in the presence of all these others that are listening, who have left their homes and families and jobs to learn his ways and carry his message, have entered into a blessed state of sonship and citizenship now. So what that means is the Father's favor is theirs now. He gives them the kingdom now. Consider, as Jesus' reign spreads across this planet in greater and greater measure, and even perhaps one day into the outer galaxies, everything his light touches and transforms, people, families, sea, soil, buildings, businesses, planets, galaxies, and more, that all belongs to the kingdom of Christ of which we are right now co-heirs. All that stuff is in the family. So everywhere you go in the world today, wherever you find the kingdom of God, you are seeing and experiencing and living in the already glory of your internal inheritance right now. Look at the next three Beatitudes for just a moment. We're going to deal with verse 21 next week. And the week after, Jeremy's going to preach from chapter 6, verses 22 to 23. But listen to these three for just a moment. Blessed are those who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who cry now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, exclude you, insult you, scorn your name. For behold, your reward is great, but it's in heaven. It's still future. We haven't got to it yet. Now, I don't want to take anything away from the glory of what Jesus is going to say in the coming Beatitudes, but I want to highlight how powerful this is. Those are still not yet. Jesus begins his sermon here speaking to his disciples in the hearing of a bunch of people who are still on the fence as to whether or not they should give their all. And he, in effect, tells them the poor which no one in Israel or Greece or anywhere in the world wants to be. These poor right here standing in my midst who have given up all to follow me get right now what everyone in the world has always been seeking. No wait lists, no reservations. They're not put on rapture watch. The blessings and rights of citizenship are theirs today. And as long as that kingdom endures, you get to keep all that you get. You want to know why Christians lack joy? 
I think it's because we forget this blessedness. When's the last time you considered that the treasure that your heart longed for for years, maybe some of you decades of your life, as you wandered aimlessly without hope, along with a mass of humanity clawing around in the darkness, looking for some sign or sense that you are beloved and chosen and precious by the Father, to receive the joy that you were made for, but yet in the mercy of God, he brought your dead heart to life in Christ so that you gave up everything and followed him. And so that state of blessed sonship is yours now. You are not required to fight a whole Persian army to prove your bravery or bow down to an idol or work through the five pillars of Islam. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, you walked away from your former life from sin to be his disciple. And that Christ got up off his throne and said, I want to share my kingdom with you now, today. Almost anywhere in the world you go today, you can find family, community, history, legacy in his kingdom. You have access to graces and powers and light and guidance and eternal truth and wisdom. And God himself was put into your heart and sealed there. How can you keep a dour face before a God that is giving like this? You ever sit there like the older brother in the prodigal son story? looking at God's mercies to others and wondering why you don't have what they have? Anyone who does that isn't poor. Not poor enough. You think too highly of yourself. And you need to repent. I'm talking to husbands and fathers who are struggling to make ends meet. I'm talking to you. Sisters who wish they had the same authority as husbands or men. I'm talking to you. Parents with persistently disobedient children looking to others who think they have their children all under control. I'm talking to you. Single folks still waiting for marriage. Talking to you. Childless couples. I'm talking to you. Longtime followers of Jesus who still feel like you're on the bench and you can't get anything right and God's never going to choose you for anything. I'm talking to you. Jesus has held nothing back from us. Here's my kingdom. It's yours now, right now. You don't have to wait for it. You get it all. Every bit of it. And as it grows, there's more. There's more to enjoy. How much more do we have than the disciples had? They gave up everything for this small little growing kingdom. And it exploded. Today it's filled most of the world. How much more are we offered in this kingdom? What more can he say to you, beloved, than he hath already said to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Listen to the encouraging words of Matthew Henry. You are poor, you have left all to follow me. You are never to expect any worldly preferment in the service of Jesus. You must work hard and fare hard as poor people do. But you are blessed in your poverty. 
It shall be no prejudice at all to your happiness. Nay, you are blessed for it. And all your losses shall be abundantly made up to you, for yours is already the kingdom of God. All the comforts and graces of his kingdom here and all the glories and joys of his kingdom hereafter, yours it shall be, nay, Matthew Henry says, yours it already is. Go home this week and make a list with your family of all that is yours because you left the pleasures of this world to follow Jesus. And then add to that list as often as you can. Have your spouse and your kids and your friends and your family add to it as well. Jesus didn't say you would be blessed. He said you are. And the kingdom is yours now, all of it. Finally, lost person, I ask you, what are you waiting for at this point? There's not one image bearer who's ever lived who hasn't wanted what Jesus said that the poor have here. Yes, it comes at a cost, a very high cost, but all you will lose for Jesus is only what you would take with you to hell. In its place, you will receive favor, which brings peace, contentedness, joy, lasting and abiding joy, and with the kingdom a hundred times as much as you lose in this life and in the age to come, eternal life, if you come to Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, and now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Let us pray. Father, all of my childhood, I was pointed towards the rewards one day in heaven, and they are very real, and they are eternal, and they will be there. But your word tells us that the rewards have broken into this life now. And what one day we'll experience as rapturous joy in heaven has broken into this life now. And we are blessed people. From that blessed state, from that place of the favor of your right hand, would you create joy in our hearts? If there is need for repentance, would you help us to repent? If there is a need for coming back to Christ after wandering away, would you bring us back? If we have been covetous of others, let us hate it in our hearts and plead with you for forgiveness, knowing that we have it in Jesus' name. And make us a truly happy people, happy because we have that blessing abiding on us, and ours is the kingdom.